Matthew 16 and beginning at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Would it matter if you died a loser? Would it matter if you died a loser? Nobody likes losing, certainly not persistently for an entire lifetime. And yet Jesus today tells us to lose our lives. And he leaves it as open as that. Uh, Lose your life, deliberately that open. Why? Because there are many different temptations that the devil will try and trap you with, make you feel like a loser for your entire life. Let's not forget that John the Baptist died at the start of our section in the most gruesome and horrific of circumstances. And no doubt he would have felt like a big loser for much of his life. But to be a Christian, according to Jesus, well, is to lose your life now. I wonder if you know about monkey traps. Do you know about monkey traps? They are savage traps which play on really stupid animals um, who can't see beyond their noses. Um, What evil poachers do is create a small opening in a hollowed out box and the hole is small enough for the, 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 the hand to slip in but too small to retract when the hand is clenched into a fist. So they put tempting food uh, in the box and then the monkey gets a whiff of the food, slips the hand in and then is trapped. If only it would let go of the banana, then they'll be free. And the devil is in the business of making human monkey traps. What would be the trap that he might create for us, I wonder? What would we, with life in Jesus staring us in the face, fail to let go of, such that we got trapped and lost everything, even eternal life? I mean, how would the devil make us feel like a loser? Cause, cause, because he'll try anything and everything, laying lots of traps for us. And let me tell you, they won't just be bananas and food. 
See, the stupid, persistent, determined to capture the prize monkey would feel it couldn't even survive without well, whatever it has in its hand in that moment. It's an evil trap. Don't let it get us. It can ruin our life in the Lord Jesus. Uh, last week was a really epic moment, wasn't it, if you were here? Uh, Peter, he declared Jesus as the Christ, verse 16, as we've been saying to each other for the last few weeks. Jesus is quizzing his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ. Finally, Peter has got it right. Top of the class. But did you spot uh, the oddity of how that passage ended last week? Did you see that? Verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was that Christ. Why did Jesus tell the disciples to keep shtum, to be silent? So odd. They knew he was the Christ. Surely this was the moment to go really public on that. But you see, the understanding of the Christ wasn't fully formed just yet. So we, we get to our first point. The Christ must die and rise. Verses 21 to 23. The Christ must die and rise. Um, this is the beginning of a new idea in the book. You can see that there when it says Jesus began to teach them. Uh, up to this point in Matthew's story of Jesus, we've been seeing Jesus's identity of the Christ. The penny finally dropped for Peter in our previous passage. Relief, finally. After all the blatant signs that Jesus was from God, the king of eternity, Peter, the rock of the apostolic word, he gets it. And so Jesus, like any patient teacher, he begins to take things beyond just lesson one, who he was, the Christ, to lesson two, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, from the euphoria of verse 16, this lesson is a lot to process for the disciple. Notice just how emphatic Jesus is, though. This is essential, a non-negotiable. Uh, read the verse really carefully. He must go. Nothing optional about this. And we all know that Jesus had to die, don't we? I presume that is slightly old news to us now. But imagine hearing this for the very first time. Imagine being Peter. Um, he is perplexed. No, no, I think it's more than that. He's more like bewildered. He can't bear the thought of Jesus having to die. And I think we need to sympathize with him for a moment. I think about it. Uh, Peter knows that Jesus is the Christ, and that's God's eternal chosen king who will rule for all time. So why would God's eternal king need to die? It doesn't make any sense to him. Surely the whole purpose of an eternal king is that he won't die. It doesn't square at all easily for Peter. I mean, he probably presumed that there would be a coup on the Romans to politically overthrow the surrounding armies, to restore Israel to their former glories. Why would 
the Christ, the ruler of the world, do such a mad thing as suffer and die? And for that matter, die intentionally. And we know that Jesus' mission wasn't about Romans and Greeks or Egyptians and Babylonians or conquering any kings of any kind. Jesus was about far more significant stuff than all of that. He was about sin and forgiveness, life and death eternal. He came to die so that we might live. But Peter couldn't understand that yet. Now, I take it, I take it that those of us in this room, we've heard many times about the necessity of the cross. Uh, So many times now that this is precisely the opposite of what this was for Peter. This was brand new information for Peter. Surprising revelation. We find it old news, don't we? Taken for granted, presumed, almost, dare I say it, dulled to our senses, probably trying to scroll on to the next new shiny thing, to which I think we need to realize just how strongly Jesus says this must be his path. Look at verse 22. I mean, we all love Peter for his heart and sleeve, brazen moments of honesty, don't we? Peter takes Jesus aside and tells him, in short, not on your Nelly, Jesus. There is no way that you will ever die. This shall never happen to you, Jesus. Not in a million years. Now, do we quite realize the irony of this moment? Peter is taking who he thinks is the Christ aside and tailing him off. Do you feel the irony? Isn't that bizarre? If Jesus is God's king of all time, don't we think he ought to have the humility to say, why, of course, Jesus, uh, you are the Lord God of all time. Far be it for me to question you. But no, uh, Peter questions the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus has only one thing to say to that. Thinking like that is satanical. Look at verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, So much for being top of the class. Peter doesn't get it at all, does he? And doesn't that put into perspective just how forcefully Jesus thinks the must in our point needs to be? Jesus was the most loving person to ever walk the earth. He doesn't overstate. He means every word that he says. And he says to Peter... This rock, which he'll build his church from, get behind me, Satan. Is there anything stronger that the Lord Jesus could have said to him in this moment? Not that I can think of. The Christ must die and rise. The cross quite simply is crucial. Because thinking otherwise is like aligning yourself with the devil himself. Put it this way, if Satan were to be granted one wish, it would be that, that Jesus would not die. That would be his wish. Because it is central, crucial, fundamental to God's plan for the world. Stop the cross and the resurrection, and the whole of the gospel goes goes from living water to dishwater. Jesus says that, Peter is a hindrance, uh, literally they're a stumbling block. 
or an obstacle, like a big brick wall in his way. I wonder how strongly that we would insist upon Jesus' death. Would we call any teaching that doesn't put Jesus' death and resurrection as essential and, and, and crucial? Would we call it satanical if that weren't the case? It's very strongly put, isn't it? I mean, try this experiment for, for on for size. Um, imagine that you could take some scissors to the gospel and you cut out all the bits about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from here on in, in Matthew's gospel. What do you think you'd be left with? Well, quite simply, you'd be left with confetti, a pile of confetti. We will have gutted the truth from the gospel from the very core. We certainly wouldn't have the truth of the gospel anymore because the cross is that crucial. And here's the thing. The world thinks like Satan. Did you spot that connection at the end of verse 23? You're not setting your minds on things of God, but on things of Satan. Well, that, that's, not what, that's what we'd expect him to say, given Jesus' label of Peter as Satan. But that's not what he says. He says, man. Isn't that a surprise? Because, you see, the entire world finds offense at the cross, be it Muslims, Jews, Hindus, or Western society. Even many so-called Christians find the cross to be a stumbling block, a hindrance, something which trips them up. I wonder, how can we face the ridicule of that world without shifting our ground and keeping the cross central? Why should we cling to that weak, shameful cross? We need to know that Jesus himself held the cross as crucial to being the Christ. Thinking anything else, anything at all, is actually satanical. How can we view Jesus' death as vital, as crucial, core to our hope, core to how Jesus will establish and assemble his church. And let's not forget this. On all sorts of theological issues, there can be disagreements. Uh, Most theological debates, uh, they don't really matter. Being on either side of most debates, they won't affect your salvation. But when it comes to Jesus' death, the truth is singular singular. If you are wrong on this, then we are ruined forever. See, other errors are merely skin deep. Errors on Christ's death are actually diseases of the heart, core to who we are. See, the moment we give up that Christ has died for us, we have no solid ground for hope at all. Now, before Jesus does what most of us probably want him to do in this moment, namely um, explain why Jesus' death is so crucial, he moves on. It's very striking, that, isn't it? There's no explanation just here. No forgiveness for sins explained. No penal substitutionary atonement explained here. No union with Christ explained. No salvation for all explained. 
Uh, no de- de- defeat of the devil explained. No revelation of God explained here. But don't worry. He's going to get to all of that. That's why there's so much of Matthew's book left to come. We're only halfway through. See, the cross really is crucial, and there's so much to explain about it. But what Jesus does first is very surprising. He turns immediately and directly to his disciples to tell them what implications his death and resurrection has on them and us. to To tell each and every one of us here, whether you're Tom, Dick, or Harry, every single one of us, what we have to do. So we move on to our second point. We must follow the Christ's pattern. We must follow the Christ's pattern, verses 24 to 28. Um, how are we going to do that? By losing our life now to save it later. I mean, he's just said uh, he's going to Jerusalem to die and to rise. And now he's saying, come with me. Come with me all the way to the cross. Come die a death with me. That's an extraordinary offer, isn't it? Imagine after this meeting later on, I turned to one of you and said, I'm off to Liverpool Street later to be killed. Fancy joining me. It's a really bizarre invitation, isn't it? Let's think about it carefully. First of all, what's he actually saying? Well, Jesus gives three clauses, which all boil down to the same thing. Verse 24, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Firstly, deny yourself. To deny is to say no. That's what a denial is. You can deny an accusation. No, I I didn't do that. But we're not saying deny an accusation. We're denying self. I mean, I have a policy in my life never to deny myself an ice cream when offered. I never deny myself in that way. But what exactly is Jesus saying that we are to deny? Yourself. Not of an ice cream or an accusation, but of yourself. No to me. Especially in our modern society, this is really painful isn't it? Our society leads us to believe that self is the ultimate arbiter of truth. That is wrong. We are wrong. We need to deny ourselves, say no to self-rule, no to self-determination, no to self-government, no to being self-centered. Because ever since Genesis 3, man has sinned and said yes to self said yes to our own dominion. So what Jesus is doing here is essentially reversing the fall. Say no to self. Deny yourself. Jesus further clarifies, second clause, take up your cross. Now the cross was the Roman form of execution. So think electric chair. Think hangman's noose. But the point of actually talking about taking up your cross here was not just about the dying, but also about the humiliation on the way there. See, the criminal was sentenced in the court 
and then immediately had to drag their own cross to the site of execution. And it's a bit like the stocks of the medieval times. It was about the shame of it all, because the crowd had fun with you on the way. They played with you. They made a sport out of you, throwing rotten fruit at you, spitting on you, etc., Apparently, they used to say uh, that criminals were so relieved to finally arrive at the execution, so bad was the persecution along the way. Doesn't that show us just how bad that would have been? Relieved to die on a cross? The third clause, follow me. Uh, Easy enough to understand, I think. Like follow the leader, copy Jesus. Do everything that he did. Come and join me on the road of suffering. Many things. Remember verse 21. So Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, say no to yourself, pick up this same cross as me, and come with me to be executed. Through all the persecution and hatred, come with me. And all these three clauses, they all boil down to one thing. At least... Jesus seems happy to boil it down to this. Lose your life now. Lose your life now. In the rest of our passage, that seems to be how Jesus sums it up. Now, I don't know how you're feeling at this point in the talk, having heard all this. Let's be honest, given the unattractive offer from Jesus, don't you think we need some mighty big reasons to follow? Well, Jesus doesn't disappoint. The rest of our text aren't just great big reasons why we should follow and lose our lives. Uh, Firstly, uh, losing your life versus saving it. I've drawn on your handouts a table for how I think verse 26 works. Uh, This is what he's saying. There are, are two options. The world's way, saving your life now, but you will lose it later. Or there's Jesus' way. Lose your life now means save it later. And let's just think through this for a moment together. What do we all want from that diagram? What we want is to save my life now and to save it later, right? That's what we all want. The top left box followed by the bottom right box. We all want that because, well, that's the easy, comfortable option. And Jesus says that's not an option. There's no pick and mix, it's black and white. Two very clear options where the decision you make in this life will be reversed in the next. So we have to choose. Have it now or have it later. If you want it now, Jesus says, be my guest. You can have it. But realize the consequences of our choice. The arrows can't switch over. They can't go across the diagram. They can't be diagonal. They are set in place. If we have life now, we'll lose it later. But if we lose our life now, for Jesus' sake, important caveat that, then we will find it later. Now, here's our big problem, okay? Most of the time, most of us live like the later category that it doesn't exist. That's our normal life. I mean, just for a moment, cover up the right-hand column of your 
handout there where you can see the later categories. Just make it so you can't see that later categories. If the later box doesn't exist, what is the most attractive option now that you can see? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? You'd go the world's way in a heartbeat. I certainly would. If there was no later category, losing your life now for nothing would be bananas. Don't do that. But that is where the lies of the world catch us out. In fact, it's where we don't help ourselves out, in fact. We so rarely think of the later rising part of Jesus' equation, and that is madness. Madness. It's what makes the whole thing so immediately shiny and attractive. This is what traps monkeys. I vividly remember when I read this passage with a chap called Gordon. I tell you, it was so sad because he looked at this equation and he couldn't stomach it. And he stopped reading the Bible with me. And he walked away from the Lord. He wanted life now. And he couldn't see life later. And you know what? We are so quick to forget that that now box, that now box is so temporary. And the later box, that's eternal. I mean, imagine if I could have drawn the, the table on your, your diagram, on your handouts to scale. Imagine if I could get that later column to scale. I mean, all the paper in all the world wouldn't be able to contain the end of that box on your handouts, could it? We need to get that clear in our minds. And the proposition then becomes a no-brainer in the other direction. Just look at the way Jesus continues to motivate us. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is very clear. It's about profit and loss. What price do we put on our own souls? What gain would we give for our own soul? If we save our life now, then we will lose it. What is so important in life that we just won't let go of it? What's in our backpacks, as Jenny would put it so helpfully? Because it's the dilemma of the foolish man, the devil's ultimate monkey trap for a moment's temporary satisfaction. See, what would we risk losing eternity for? A job? (laughs) A relationship? Status? I mean, when you line these things up, really, next to an eternity of life in Jesus... It all seems rather pathetic, don't you think? Plastic? Temporary? There really is nothing worth trading it all in for. Eternal life with Jesus or something else that the devil might tempt us with? What do we think our own monkey traps are around here? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Uh, Jesus will come back. Make no mistake of that. 
and he will repay for us what we've done. We'll get what we deserve. There will be a judgment. (laughs) See, in the Bible, there are whopping tons of reasons why we should trust in the Lord Jesus. Many, many of them very positive. But if we won't hear any of them, I pray we would. I pray that we'd hear this negative one that Jesus puts in our minds here. Hell. Hell. Jesus, the Son of Man, will come back to judge the living and the dead. So if you won't hear any of those positive reasons listed elsewhere in the Scriptures, make sure the reality of hell hits us. If we hold on to something to save ourselves, then one day, one thing awaits us. The devil lays all sorts of monkey traps to make us feel like losers. I hope we hear that. We, we will stand before Jesus in judgment. We will be given what we deserve. Let's just pause for a moment and step back. We've spoken about such weighty claims. I don't think there are bigger things that we could have ever spoken about. And when a claim is made, the author of the claim really matters. The bigger the claim, the better the credentials need to be for the author. Who's speaking here? I mean, I would really hope it that if I told you to join me in martyrdom, that you would not do it. Realistically, if I were to make you this same offer, I hope you'd conclude that I was mad. But the point is, at this point in the gospel, we should be hanging on Jesus' every words. Consider who he is. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth to tell you to do anything. Jesus is gathering his church around himself. He is the king of all time and space. God himself. Why wouldn't we listen to him? No matter how hard it is to hear. See, now we've heard this today, we need to ask ourselves, um, who are we going to listen to? Ourselves or Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the king of all time with authority to judge, why wouldn't we listen to him? I mean, why should we lose our lives? Why should we say no to the things that I want to do? Because Jesus is God, and I am not. Jesus is the Lord of everyone. So will you let him be your Lord? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Lose your life now. Save it eternally. Let's pray. Father Almighty, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus sent to die for us. Thank you that his death made him the king of all time and space. We want to listen to Jesus and to follow him. So as he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow him, we pray that we'd have our eyes firmly fixed, welded onto the future. Losing our lives now 
is so painful. It hurts us. So help us, by your spirit, to die well in this, our temporary life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.